Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy to have you along again this week. And always want to give a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time or to those of you who have joined in recently. Today is January 25th. Hard to believe we're already a month removed from Christmas and almost a month into 2021. I have started to notice the days being a little bit longer, so that's a reason for a little optimism, right? Of course, if it's raining or snowing, then five to 10 extra minutes of daylight is irrelevant, right? Now, uh, your subscribing and listening to the podcast really means a lot, and I appreciate the support. And if you feel up to spreading the word on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or any other platform, I would also really appreciate that too. And before we get going today, just want to remind you to subscribe to the YouTube channel for the video interviews, which get posted a few weeks after the actual podcast episode, and the other content that I'm going to start to add in uh, this year, some smaller, uh, more quick-hitting video clips. Today, I'm excited to have Katie Novak joining me for the interview. She's a globally recognized expert in universal design for learning, so that is exactly what our conversation focuses on. In Assessment Corner, we're going to have part two of my conversation about atypical assessment methods. And today I'm gonna talk about the how of both engineering conversations and storytelling as ways to authentically assess learners. So that's the plan for today, let's get to it. conversation with Katie Novak is coming up shortly, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by trying to understand those who subscribe to conspiracy theories. A conspiracy, of course, is simply a secret plot. And if we're being honest, conspiracy theories can be fun and provide endless hours of debate. In sports alone, there are plenty of them. Michael Jordan's first retirement was at a secret suspension for gambling. Did the NBA rig the 1985 NBA draft for the New York Knicks so they could get Patrick Ewing? You know, did they bend the corner of the envelope or, or did they freeze the envelope so the commissioner would know which one was New York's? Did the NFL destroy evidence from Spygate to hide what the New England Patriots were really doing? You know, in general, we've had conspiracy theories about the moon landing or Area 51. Uh, the Denver airport, $2 billion over budget, is at the headquarters for the Illuminati. Harmless, all in good fun, right? Well, not always. I mean, think of all the conspiracies that have been around for years about the Kennedy assassination or that 9-11 was an inside job. And of course, most recently, we have all the information from QAnon. Social media and the internet in general, of course, have made 2020 a conspiracy theory year unlike any I've ever seen. And with the onset of COVID in the late winter, early spring, Black Lives Matter protests that emerged in the summer, it's hard to imagine that we've been through a more prolonged period of stress and anxiety. And in the first few weeks of January, what with the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and the disruption to and the potential downfall of the American democracy, it has really been a year unlike any other. The last summer, before I started this podcast, I was in this mindset of trying to figure out why. Now, it's easy, listen, probably too easy, to pass off those who believe in conspiracy theories as being crazy or delusional. And I'm not trying to be dismissive to what has occurred. What happened in Washington, D.C. on January 6th was dangerous, 
and it could have altered the American democracy maybe forever. But last summer, I was looking for some answers. How can otherwise seemingly normal people fall for this stuff? Sure, there have always been polit political disagreements. That's timeless, and we always see one side trying to cast the other side as diabolical. But conspiracies go to a whole new level in creating situations that are impossible to deal with. The thing that most frustrates me about dealing with conspiracy theorists is that they expect you to prove the negative. They make the assertion, and you have to disprove the assertion. Which seems a little backwards, don't you think? I mean, if you make the assertion, shouldn't you have to prove it? Nope. Conspiracy theorists expect you to do it. Anyway, so in my search for answers, I came across a research article written by Karen Douglas, Robbie Sutton, and Alexandra Chichoka. Now, they're from the School of Psychology at Kent University, and the article was called The Psychology of Conspiracy Theories, and it was published in 2017. The question was, what psychological factors drive the popularity of conspiracy theories? And essentially, in their synthesis of the research, they came up with three motives. And what they found is that these three motives, one, epistemic, two, existential, and three, social. Those three motives are what drive the belief in conspiracy theories. So let's begin with the first one, epistemic. Now, finding causal explanations for events is how we all make sense of the world when what appears to be an otherwise unexplainable event happens. So with COVID, of course, you can see how conspiracy theories that surround COVID came to form by people trying to understand how a virus could spread so rapidly and how in our modern world, our modern science, our, our modern medicine, we couldn't contain it, or at least haven't been able to so far. Conspiracy theories, the researchers submit, are speculative in that they posit actions that are hidden from public scrutiny. They're complex in that they postulate the coordination of multiple actors, and they're resistant to falsification. I want you to listen to this part really closely. They're resistant to falsification because they postulate that conspirators use stealth and disinformation to cover up their actions, implying that people who try to debunk conspiracy theories may themselves be a part of the conspiracy. So it's impossible to debunk because as soon as you try to debunk it, they think you're in on it. I mean, this is where all of the assertions about mainstream media come from. Right? You can't win. If your contradictory information comes from the mainstream media, then conspiracy theorists will just simply assert, you know, again, forcing you to prove the negative, that the mainstream media are in on it. The other epistemic motive is that conspiracy theories can protect cherished beliefs. So if you hold a particular position, so, you know, maybe that climate change is not serious, for example, or vaccines are harmful, the conspiracy theories allow one to preserve their beliefs. So epistemic motives are definitely a, a psychological influence. Okay, what about existential motives? Douglas, Sutton, and Chichoka found that, quote, as well as their purely epistemic purposes, causal explanations serve the need for people to feel safe and secure in their environment and to exert control over the environment as autonomous individuals and as members of collectives, end quote. Significant catastrophic events make people feel as if they're just a cog in the wheel, as if they have no control. The need to exert control over what appears to be an uncontrollable situation is psychologically important to them. 
And many studies have shown that people are likely to turn to conspiracy theories when they are anxious and when they feel powerless. Now, other research indicates that conspiracy belief is strongly related to the lack of sociopolitical, uh, sociopolitical control or the lack of psychological empowerment. Experiments have actually shown that compared with baseline conditions, conspiracy belief is heightened when people feel unable to control the outcomes and is reduced when their sense of control is affirmed. So existential motives are also a psychological influence. All right, the third one, social motives. Conspiracy theories, you know, so causal explanations or conspiracy theories are also informed by various social motivations, including the desire to belong and to maintain a positive image of yourself and the in-group. Scholars have suggested that conspiracy theories valorize the self and the in-group by allowing blame for the negative outcomes to be attributed to others. So they're helpful to uphold the image of the self and the in-group as being competent and moral, but as a group that has been sabotaged by the powerful and the unscrupulous, right? So it kind of sets them as this in-group. Now listen to this, and I want you to hear it and reflect on what happened on January 6th and essentially all of the post-election atmosphere in the United States. Quote, People on the losing side of political processes also appear more likely to believe in conspiracy theories. End quote. Remember, this is from 2017, not 2020. Conspiracy belief, the researchers say, is also predicted by a collective narcissism, a belief in the in-group's greatness paired with a belief that other people do not appreciate their greatness enough. So groups who feel that they've been victimized are more likely to endorse conspiracy theories about powerful outgroups, end quote. But here's the kicker. The belief in conspiracy theories does not seem to actually satisfy those motives. Conspiracy theories are antisocial. They are speculative. They are contrarian. They represent the public as ignorant and at the mercy of uncontrollable powers, and they impute highly antisocial and cynical motives to other people. Not exactly how you endear yourself to the masses, right? The preliminary work, Douglas and her colleagues write, suggests that despite the allure of conspiracy beliefs for people who have heightened epistemic, existential, and social motives, they may ultimately thwart those motives even further. In this sense, conspiracy theories might be seen as ironic or self-defeating manifestations of motivated social cognition. Now, to me, this kind of explains the rabbit hole idea or concept and why so many who believe in conspiracy theories get more and more stuck in. Despite their motives, the issues that drive the motives are never satisfied. I mean, they might be for some individuals, but for the collective, they're typically not satisfied. So conspiracy theorists never quite get the explanation. They never quite feel safe and secure, or they never quite get that bond or that social connection. So what are we to do? Well, I suppose it's easier to deal with conspiracy theorists when they are an avatar on Twitter or Facebook. It's quite another thing if it's someone you know, someone you work with, and or someone who's important to you. Well, honestly, I don't really have an answer for what to do other than Maybe this. Try to figure out the motive behind the belief 
and see if you can take just a half step back and and get a sense of where this is coming from. I know I know it's not easy, but we have to try. So maybe ask yourself, you know, these three questions. Do you think that they're craving an explanation of an otherwise unexplainable event? Or do you think they just want to feel safe and secure because they feel things are out of control? Or do you think they hold a belief that is not wildly popular and therefore are seeking the security of a community that thinks like them? I don't know. All I do know is that you'll never talk a conspiracy theorist out of their position. At some point, they are going to figure out that they're wrong. Well, maybe. I mean, we're starting to see some cracks in the QAnon wall. Yes, some are digging in more than than others, but according to many reports I've seen, many are expressing how they feel duped or lied to. That, you know, they're, but they're going to have to come to that conclusion on their own. Shaming them is not going to do that. And at some point, the rest of us are going to have to allow these people to re-enter society, so to speak. I mean, obviously, if via conspiracy theories people have committed criminal acts, like on January 6th, then of course there needs to be accountability for their actions. No excuses. I, I hear that. But that's not the majority of people. And they need to be handled with a little bit of finesse instead of pouncing. There was a motive behind their belief. And that motive is not going to disappear overnight. Look, it works both ways, for sure. And many conspiracy believers will need to account for their antisocial behavior toward you if, in fact, they acted as if you're ignorant or you're one of the sheeple, if you will. Is it going to be easy to come together? Absolutely not. Is it necessary for us to find a way to come together? Absolutely. Joining me today for the interview is Dr. Katie Novak. She is the founder and executive director of Novak Educational Consulting. Uh, Katie is an internationally renowned educational consultant who specializes in inclusive practices, universal design for learning, multi-tiered systems of support, and universally designed leadership. She is the author of eight books, including the bestseller, UDL Now, that's a teacher's guide to applying universal design for learning in today's classrooms. Katie's work has been highlighted in many, many publications, including Edutopia, uh, Language Magazine, The Inclusion Lab, Huffington Post, ASCD Education Update, School Administrator, you name it. Katie's probably been highlighted or published there. So needless to say, Katie is an incredibly influential voice in education, and I'm so thrilled uh, to have her on the podcast. So Katie, welcome to the Tom Schimmer Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it's great. Uh, you know, uh, great to reconnect with you. You know, we had a conversation uh, a number of years ago. And of course, in the busyness of life, we sort of lost contact and didn't stay in touch. We're sort of on the, hey, we'll have a conversation every six years program. Um, but so the podcast seemed like a perfect chance for us to reconnect. And, it, and it's been really great to reconnect with you and just catch up on, on your work and family and all that's happening for you. But the one thing I remember from our conversation is you talking about the 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 duck pond? Am I, am I remembering that right? The duck pond around your house or near your house? 
Yeah, so I live on Duck Pond Drive here in Massachusetts, and okay. it's named Duck Pond because it was like built out in the woods, essentially, on yeah. a duck pond. And okay. so I abut conservation land. There's a lovely little duck pond behind my house, and we walk the dog around it every morning, and it's beautiful. And, and when you ask about the duck pond, I'm shocked that you remember that. It's such a small <laughs> detail, but yes, I am here on the shores of the duck pond. Yeah. yeah, I, 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 like I said, I have this, uh, this, this skill for remembering, remembering obscure facts, but, uh, you know, where my keys are half the time, I can't find them or where's my wallet. I don't know, but uh, the stuff I deal with every day, but, uh, Katie, it's great. It's great to have you, uh, here. And I know listeners are going to look forward to hearing your expertise in UDL, because I think that is, uh, still, uh, you know, UDL is still something that I think people understand to a point, but there's also some misunderstandings out there. So I think we have an opportunity here to really dig into UDL, what it is, what it's not, all of those different iterations. But I wanna start with the autobiography or your, your biography. Um, take us through the arc of your career, Katie. Talk about sort of how you started your career and how do you end up as a globally recognized leader and expert in the area of UDL? By total accident. <laughs> so, so I started off as a teacher. I was a high school English teacher first, and uh, I started out my career in California. I'm actually from Massachusetts, but I got my graduate degree out there. I taught there for a couple years and then decided that I wanted to come home. And I wasn't able to find a high school job at that time. Um, this was before you have like electronic ways that you can find jobs. So I would have to have my parents mail me the Boston Globe, essentially. And I applied to like every single district in Massachusetts that I could. And for the last 10 years that I taught, I was um, an English teacher in the middle school. I was a seventh grade English teacher. So I was in the classroom for 13 years, and I really wanted to stay in the classroom. I, I saw myself long-term teaching, um, but I did go and get a doctorate. Um, I graduated in 2009 because my dad was a college professor, and I saw that of like, I'll teach out my career, like my mom, my mom's a fifth grade teacher, and then I can become like a college professor after I retire, like my dad. And so I had a doctorate and I was in the classroom and by complete happenstance, the district that I was in where I was teaching seventh grade was um, a selected to be a part of a big research study funded by the Gates Foundation called the Tale of Four Districts and essentially cast which is like the UDL mothership. They created uh, the, the concept of universal design for learning. They coined that, that framework. They were looking for four districts to follow throughout the course of a few years to determine like what does effective implementation look like when you're scaling and optimizing a new initiative or a new framework. And so I was in the district, we received the funding, and a part of it was essentially going to like a two-week intensive with CAST during the summer, and then having CAST come out like once a month for years to observe your classroom practice, to meet with you afterwards, and it was all about scaling the district. So they asked me if I wanted to be a part of it, and I was like, ah, no, I'm not interested, thank you. And 
they're like, but, but you have a, a doctoral degree. Like, it's clear that you want to do something else. Like, this is a great opportunity for your distributed leadership. And I'm like, yeah, but no, no, thank you. Like I, you know, I'm pregnant with my first and I feel like I sign up for everything. You end up with teachers who are pretty innovative and they just get slammed. So, you know, I was piloting, looking at student work protocols and I was coaching cross country and I was running the school newspaper and I was, you know, piloting a full inclusion co-teaching model. And I'm like, go ask someone else. And then it was, I was totally, totally back into a corner because they offered a stipend during the summer to do it. And so I was like, ah, I can't say no to per diem pay in the summer. So right. that is how I learned about UDL totally by accident. And so I'm, you know, I'm a seventh grade teacher, like so many other people just loving my time with students. And I attend this two week kind of I guess you can call it symposium in the summer to learn about UDL as a practitioner. And there was just so much data collection because I was a part of this study. And so there were interviews and, you know, as a part of one of the interviews, they asked me, um, you know, what would you have done differently about this two week, you know, intensive universal design kind of experience? And I was like, to be honest, I probably would have universally designed it. And they were like, I'm sorry, <laughs> what was that? I'm like, what you're telling me is that UDL is very much about like flexibility and voice and choice. We all were required to do the same thing for this two weeks. Right. And as the story goes, David Rose heard that and thought it was hilarious and reached out to me and said, how would you have designed it? And I told him and he said, okay, come out to Harvard University and present at the Summer Institute. So my first ever presentation was at Harvard University's like international symposium in front of David Rose, the founder of UDL as like this pistol of a kid who's going to show him <laughs> universally designed professional development. And honest to goodness, the rest is history. Yeah, I became yeah. very close friends with Dr. David Rose. He is an absolute mentor of mine. Yeah. I became a part of the cast, um, cadre. And then from there, I was a reading coordinator and ELL director. I was an assistant superintendent of schools for six yeah. years, and now I'm consulting full-time. But I really yeah. honestly credit um, absolute happenstance and just naive stupidity <laughs> to tell <laughs> the director and, and the chief uh, academic officer at CAS that I could do it better. <laughs> You know, we, we, we all, I think, at times can look in our lives and say, you know, um, I have these moments in life where I said something without thinking, and how's that going to turn out? And you just said what you said, and and really, as you say, the rest is history, right? It's like, careful, careful what you say, Katie, you might have uh, an influ influence. Um, and to present in that setting as your first presentation, I mean, if you could handle that, uh, you can you can handle anything. <laughs> yeah, well, somebody sure. came up to me afterwards and he said, do you do this like in other districts? I'm like, yes. I, no, I have no idea. No, so I had to like call a bunch yeah. of my friends. I'm like, how much do consultants charge? Somebody just <laughs> wanted me to like fly to their district. But right. like, I honestly meant that I meant it sincerely. I didn't mean it to be fresh, although of, I can be fresh. Is yeah. that from my interpretation, it was all yeah. about supporting different tasks and formats at the same time. And right. although what I did was incredibly, incredibly rich and I learned so much, mm -hmm. it was, you know, now we're all going to jigsaw this article. Now we're all going to do this fishbowl. Now right. we're, and it was just, I was having a hard time kind of bridging what I was learning to what I was experiencing. Yeah. And 
so I, I just made a comment. And since then I've been um, lucky to continue to work with Cass. They're the absolute best. And I can tell anyone looking for PL training is that everything they do is universally designed now. (laughs) They are. They are. Thanks to you, Katie, of course. Right. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Not just me. Well, no, but you, 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 you changed their thinking. There's no question about it. If, if, if the, the things played out the way you describe it, then absolutely you changed their way of thinking. And I think you had a huge influence on that. Okay. So let's, let's dig into the fundamentals then let's talk about UDL and, and sort of for, you know, there may be people listening uh, who are quite familiar with UDL, but there may also be some people listening who are, they've heard of UDL or they've just started their UDL journey. So uh, let's, let's first talk about the big ideas and the fundamentals. How does UDL contrast with more conventional ways of planning uh, and why do you think it's so critical that educators be well-versed in the principles of UDL? So, you know, UDL is really a, a way or a belief system to view how we plan for all learners to be successful. So the three core components are really that, first of all, you recognize what learner variability is, is in traditional education, we have been very incorrectly taught that labels mean something for learning. And I know this because I hear educators always saying, well, what does this look like for students with autism? Or what does this look like for students who have disabilities? Or what does this look like for language learners? No one in those groups is the same. Like, it's not like you can just take a bunch of language learners and be like, well, I know exactly what they need because of one part of their identity. We don't. And variability is essentially that regardless of our identity or intersectionality, that all of us have a really unique mix of strengths and weaknesses, but they're ever changing and they're really contextual. So, you know, I am somebody who you would probably identify as being like a strong reader. You could hand me a book and I would be able to read it. I have the ability to decode. I have a lot of background knowledge. I have a strong vocabulary. That being said, if I don't have my contact lenses in, I cannot read because I cannot see. And so my ability to be a reader is really contextual because it means that I have to have corrective lenses on. Um, I can't have a migraine, the lights can't be out. And and that's that concept of variability. So the first thing is that really recognizing that variability means that people are so ever-changing that we cannot plan like we know what everybody needs without allowing their involvement to say, okay, right now, this is what I need given the options that you've provided to me. The second core component is that it's about firm goals, flexible means is every learner deserves equal opportunities to access grade level instruction. That is not a privilege that we have the right to take away. I think that sometimes we'll say it's too difficult. They can't do it. We have to reframe our thinking into they might not be able to access it in this way, or, you know, maybe we're not going to have the same exact performance at the end, but everybody deserves equal opportunities to access grade level rigor, to have high expectations and to have lots of different options for getting there. Um, And then the last one is really this concept of expert learning, which is that all learners, when given the opportunities to really get to know themselves, to reflect, to make choices, will learn about how to meet their own needs through learning. They'll learn the approaches that work best for them based on the context. And so when you're thinking about universal design, a lot of people will get into the weeds and they'll start thinking of it as like, this is a list of strategies. These are things that I can do as opposed to these are things that I believe. I believe that there's beauty and variability and diversity. I believe that all learners can 
access grade level rigor when I design differently. And I also believe that students can really partner with me in helping me create those pathways. But because of variability, I can never expect everyone to be doing the same exact thing in the same exact way at the same exact time because it just simply equal inputs does not equate to equal outputs or equal opportunities. So the UDL principles are essentially like what are kind of the places that we can provide that flexibility because it's in service of those core beliefs, variability, firm goals, flexible means, and expert learning. Yeah. You know, your, your comment about labels really struck me as I've had some recent conversations about how labels can be both a blessing and a curse in the sense that, you know, obviously the, the labels are helpful when it comes to supplemental funding or it comes to kind of giving us a clue as to how we might support someone with autism, et cetera. But I'm finding more and more that the labels are starting to influence and, and maybe it's just the longevity in the career, seeing the, the labels really starting to compartmentalize and create sort of this idea that groups are a monolith. You, you mentioned English language learners, and sometimes ELs are referred to as ELs when we realize that there are long-term ELs who have you know, conversational fluency in English, but but they they have limited academic language. And then on the other hand, we have ELs who are very competent and proficient in academic subjects. They simply can't speak the language. And then we have, you know, ELs whose language deficiency is masking a learning disability. So the idea that you would just tr- treat that group as, as a kind of, of monolith, uh, you know, the list goes on as to how we need to really focus on that variability and, and be a little bit more granular as opposed to the labels being restricting or diminishing in terms of the expectations we have for those learners. Uh, let's take a closer look at UDL now and the guidelines uh, one at a time. So we're going to start with uh, providing multiple means of engagement. So walk us through, what, do, what does that mean? So it's multiple means of engagement, multiple means of representation, and then multiple means of action and expression. So let's start with engagement. Sure. So think of those as like pathways to flexibility. So if we want all students to be truly engaged, then we have to make sure that all students are invested enough to give the task their attention and their commitment. So engagement is really this concept of how do we capture student interest, but then how do we get students to work toward goals that in many ways are going to be out of their reach. Learning is essentially building new knowledge. There is cognitive dissonance that happens during learning. And because of that, we have to recognize that we want students to to go through that process of learning or unlearning, and that requires some sort of discomfort. So we have to provide them with the tools and the environment that allows them to keep working despite their discomfort. And also we have to really focus on self-regulation. How do we have them cope with that discomfort? And so what we know is that just because of the variability of learners, there's very, very different levels of scaffolding that will be necessary to allow students to keep working. And so providing options like allowing students to work together, allowing students to get feedback from teachers at like multiple checkpoints, you know, formative and and diagnostic checkpoints, providing options for, you know, self-regulation, for taking breaks, for reflecting, Um, you know, all of that will help more students to become motivated and purposeful. And so when we're looking at it, we're really thinking about the lens of variability and then potential barriers. So this is my goal. This is my firm goal. This is what I want all students to understand, or I want all students to be able to do. And I want them to like really stick with this. Like it doesn't mean they're going to love it. UDL is not a fun meter, but they recognize that it's important enough to stick with it, but to be able to stick with it, that 
challenge has to be productive as opposed to unproductive. And so when I start thinking about what would prevent students from continuing to move forward, I start saying, you know, well, some students might truly not have, you know, essentially uh, an idea of where to go next. They might be stuck, which is why I'm going to provide the option to, you know, work um, with a partner or to have a check-in with a small group with the teacher or mm -hmm. to hand in work and revise that work. Okay, those all become options for all learners. So engagement is really about how do we allow students to continue to work towards really rigorous content and how do we create an environment that allows them to be more motivated and more purposeful. Yeah. But thinking about that through the lens of we also want all students to be challenged. So this kind of goes back to like old school zone of proximal development is, right. you know, some students are going to need more challenge to be challenged and some students are going to need more support so they can be productive. And one of the most important parts of engagement is this concept of choice. We yeah. are much more likely to work towards something that we ourselves have autonomy in selecting. Right. And so the more that we can say, given this firm goal, here's options that I can provide to students. You know, as you're working, you can, you know, hand in an early draft and get feedback. You can stop and reflect and think about what you need more support with. You can choose different materials or methods. Um, that all comes down to what it really means to be engaged. It's to keep working when things get hard and to know how to navigate all those feelings that come with it. Right. Um, am, am I right in thinking that um, you had said something in your response, removing barriers? Would I be right to think that if someone stopped, you know, if you were on an elevator and somebody said, what's UDL and you had two floors to tell them that you would talk about is removing barriers kind of the UDL epicenter? Is that the, the crux of what we're talking about here? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's variability helps us to recognize barriers, yeah. but okay. also I don't think that we can truly do that until we tap into people's voices because right. there's only so many barriers that I know of mm -hmm. given my lens of like a middle-class educated right. white woman. And so right. I maybe don't recognize all the barriers, which is why mm -hmm. I want to make sure that um, not only am I designing with variability in mind, but I'm also providing options for learners to share barriers they're facing that I may right. not have anticipated. Right. So it's not all teacher centered deciding ahead of time, but it's giving the opportunity for all of us to articulate what are the barriers to learning and try to remove those for sure. Okay. Let's talk about multiple means of representation. What are we talking about there? That's kind of the teaching portion is when we're providing information to learners, traditional education has provided that in only one way, which can be really exclusionary. So if, you know, my goal is that all students will understand the causes of the Civil War, and I'm going to teach them that just by lecturing there's going to be really significant barriers for students who struggle with auditory processing, for students who have hearing impairment, for students who, uh, you know, have, have um, challenges with memory or chunking information. And so multiple means of representation is essentially providing multiple methods for students to learn in ways that are accessible with the language and symbols that they can understand and that really taps into their background knowledge. So when we're thinking about 
multiple means of representation. We're thinking about providing lots of visuals, unpacking language, giving students lots of options for how they can learn information. So for instance, there's lots of ways to learn about the causes of the Civil War. So you might have you know, some explicit instruction in a mini lesson and then say to learners, okay, the goal is, is that you have to learn about some of these causes. And so here are some pathways that you can choose. Now, multiple means of representation also provides multiple means of engagement because I'm right. going to allow you to choose things that allow you to kind of move forward. So I might say, um, here's a great documentary that you can watch. It has closed captions on it. This might be a great first step to build background knowledge. If you think it would be better, here's a really good text that you can read or you can listen to, or you can choose to stay with me in a small group and I will unpack some of these. And that's how we're going to build our background knowledge. Um, yeah. What's so great about that is when you provide like access to digital. So if I say, you know, here's a great article that you can read. If I hand it out in hard copy, that's a single means of representation. If I provide it digitally, learners can translate it. They can enlarge the text. They can have a screen reader read it to them. Right. And so it's essentially providing flexible methods for students to learn and make, say, some, make sense of language. And, and so they can get the input. So the, the knowledge and the skills, because it has a landing space. Mm -hmm. It's, it's um, I think, you know, again, you bring up such a really good point about the overlap. And I think even though we're talking about, um, you know, mm -hmm. these, these guidelines as separate, uh, they sound like we're talking about them in separate silos. There's just, each has an influence over the other in terms of you're talking about representation has an influence on engagement. I think that's a really important idea to emphasize. Okay, multiple means of action and expression. So this is what I often think of as people um, think of it simply as like assessment yeah. because, you know, okay, multiple means of engagement. We have to get students motivated. We have to get them purposeful. We have to be really clear about the goals. We have to be flexible in our pathways towards the goals. We have to teach in a way that allows a really beautifully inclusive and diverse group of learners to kind of move forward and learn the information they need to learn. But then we also need them to express what they have learned in some way. And so if representation is learn it, you know, action and expression is prove to me what you learned, share okay. it. And so when we think about action and expression, we think about assessment. Um, you know, UDL is much more focused on diagnostic and formative assessment than yep. summative assessment, because mm -hmm. clearly I'm much more motivated when I know that there are still opportunities to grow and to move forward. Now, certainly, um, we live in a world where some things are going to be summative, but the real focus is how can we provide lots of different opportunities for students to express what they know so that we can better design learning environments in the future, we can better understand the variability of our classroom, and so we can provide really targeted, constructive feedback so students can move forward. And so when we're thinking of action and expression, it really comes down to those firm goals again, because if my goal is explain the causes of the Civil War, you know, choose in your opinion, if someone were to ask you, what were some of the main causes of the Civil War here in the United States, what would be your answer? And given the flexibility of that actual goal explain, students can create a video. They can write more of a traditional, you know, document-based paper. They might record a podcast where they're interviewing each other. There's actually quite a bit of flexibility in that task, but sometimes students have to solve equations. Sometimes they have to write narratives. Those yeah. are also very important skills. And so the question is, 
you know, how do I design a task so all students will be able to write a narrative and, you know, all students will be able to solve an equation. And that goes back to the barriers again, because like, Mm -hmm. why might some students not be able to solve an equation? Maybe they don't have very strong math facts. So I'm going to provide the option to use a calculator. I'm going to provide the option to use a math reference sheet. I'm going to give students options to work with me in a small group. And so the expression of knowledge is really about how will I and the learners know where we are as we're working towards this goal. So, you know, when you think about engagement, representation, action, and expression, think about like motivation and purpose, teaching, and then assessment, but all of them are so interwoven that we really have to be consistently recognizing that it's not linear. It's instead like a big ball of yarn. <laughs> everything yeah, exactly. Tied into itself. Yeah. So how do you answer the question? Cause I know you get it and I get this question a lot too, but I'm interested in your response. You talked about students making a video. You talked about recording a podcast and so you have <clears throat> students uh, offering multiple sort of means of demonstrating their proficiency and teachers will ask you, you know, Katie, how am I supposed to assess all of that when they have all of these different formats? So how do you, how do you specifically address the assessment question with teachers? I think it goes back to UDL is firm goals, flexible means. I am a very, very big supporter of competency-based or standards-based or goal-based grading. So thinking about kind of holistically, and I think there's, there's many ways to do this. I don't think there is a correct answer, but I think there's a wrong answer. <laughs> and the yeah. wrong answer is creating different criteria to grade every single thing. That's Absolutely. what you do not want to do yeah. because yeah. the question is really like, what is it that I am measuring? And if I am looking for true content knowledge, I want students to express their understanding of something that happened historically. And as a part of that, they have to cite at least four primary source documents. Those can be speeches, those can be visuals, those can be things that they wrote, I mean, that were written or that they listened to. But like if the criteria is give me the answer, the rubric would be, you know, holistically, this is how I'm going to grade it. What I don't want to see in a rubric is like, must have 10 slides in the Google slide deck. The poster must have four colors. The Mm -hmm. speech must be three minutes long. It's like, no, just just be really (laughs) clear about if you know this, this is holistically what the final outcome is going to be and be very, very proactive about this. This is how we're going to assess together whether or not you met this. I'm also a big fan of creating those rubrics with learners, you know, Mm -hmm. saying that like this is the goal. Let's talk about what a really great product will have. And certainly there are times that we have to be more structured. You know, if you're, if you're, you know, preparing students for an AP exam, we know that the, you know, the AP board is looking for really specific outcomes. And again, it's not that it's not universal design to say to students, like, you're only going to have three pages. You know, they're going to expect you to fill those three pages. This is how you're going to do it. But then the zoom back there is like, okay, so what would prevent you from being able to do this well? Have you not seen enough exemplars? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do we need to create together kind of a formula for how to do this and, mm-hmm. and to move back that way? But again, the criteria needs to be very, very planful and intentional. Yeah. And I think that the way that you decide to grade it, certainly you could do it standards-based, you could do holistic, you could do mm-hmm. a single point rubric. There's, I think, lots of options once you get for there sure. that are solid. It's yeah. just 
don't create a different rubric for every option. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, Katie, you're speaking my language here. Listeners, you'll remember a couple of segments on rubrics in the past. I call them task-neutral learning-focused rubrics, right? So the tasks are the means. The learning is what you're assessing. And Supercard has been a real proponent of the fact that, especially with performance assessment, too often teachers build their rubrics for the tasks, which means every time you change the task, you have to create new criteria, as opposed to certain learning goals run longitudinally through a semester or through a school year. And you can keep using the same criteria, even though the iteration of the learning is changing. So the idea of task task neutral, but learning focused criteria, Katie, you're, you're speaking my language. And the other part that I really appreciated and 100% and agree with is the idea of getting rid of the, the criteria that talks about counting. So my expression is quality over counting. So rubrics should describe gradations of quality, not how many. Right. So, and, and I just, I, I love that approach and, and I knew what you were going to say, but I, I, you know, I, I wanted to just sort of get your perspective on, on assessment, because I think sometimes people really do with good intentions, misunderstand even summative assessment in, in understanding that all evidence is evidence that can help you make a summative judgment. Summative doesn't have to be this epic event at the end of a unit. Uh, summative is a moment in time where a teacher looks at the preponderance of evidence and asks him or herself, you know, what is the degree to which the students met the learning goals? And if we're talking about four gradations of quality on a, uh, on a, on a scale, say a standards-based uh, proficiency scale, as opposed to uh, uh, percentages, then it's actually a fairly straightforward decision to use your professional judgment to, to, to understand how to create that criteria and, and use that summative moment. So I think it's really important to know that even though in the moment, teachers might be using the evidence formatively, all evidence can help us form a summative judgment. So I really appreciate that from your perspective. Now, how do teachers, <clears throat> how do teachers guard against, you know, we see this with, with everything, kind of UDL light. You know, I think I'm doing it. How do we prevent ourselves from thinking, all right, well, I'm doing UDL, but I'm really not. So what are some of the common ways in which teachers can maybe misrepresent UDL or just think they're doing it when it actually isn't doing it? What does UDL light look like? So UDL light often looks like choices for the sake of choices. Mm-hmm. So we're it's not that, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to fill up a choice board. I have to have five choices. I have to give students choices. It's that if I did not give students choices and I had a beautifully diverse, inclusive classroom with students with like varying levels of challenge and support needs, that I would be excluding students if I did not provide the option. Right. And so I think that that many, many examples of quote unquote UDL or UDL light are people just giving students choices, which out being super planful about why we're eliminating barriers by providing those choices. Mm -hmm. So this is not like, oh, I'm just going to let my students do a paragraph or a poster because that would be more fun for some students. This is, I can anticipate that some learners really struggle with writing and this is not a writing standard. Now, if it is a writing standard, I'm going to have a different lens. But if I'm working on a standard that is not a writing standard and I say that everyone has to write, that is a construct, a relevant thing that I am measuring. And so I think that very, very few people um, really take the time to stop and say like, what really is the goal? What are the barriers for moving towards that goal? And how can I eliminate them by providing flexibility? Um, 
in my how I'm going to engage students, how I'm going to allow students to learn this and how, and I, actually, I, I'm going to rewind that because I don't even like allow because that sounds like there's too much power. How right. am I going to design so students can choose how they're going to learn, knowing that, of course, students are not going to make great choices all the time. We don't make great choices all the time as adults. And, yeah. you know, how do we allow the room to say to students, like, this is the goal here are your options, really take some time. What is the best approach for you right now? Let's talk about it. Let's think about it. Um, Also giving space and creating an environment where we say, what happens if you recognize that you're not, you didn't make a great choice? What then? Mm -hmm. You know, we have to be ready to, to reflect and provide scaffolding. Um, And so again, I think the first thing is the, the really intentional planning. And I just think that that I know before I learned about UDL, I didn't do that. I thought about like, oh, I'm, I was an English teacher. Like we're, we're reading Old Man in the Sea next. And so these are the activities I do with Old Man in the Sea without saying like, okay, let me take out my goals. Let me take out my objectives for this course, objectives. What is it that all my learners have to know? What they have to be able to do? Which one am I really focusing on right now? What barriers would prevent students from doing that? And then how do I create those pathways? Um, Another very, very common misconception is that UDL is differentiated instruction. Just going to bring that up. Yeah, Yeah. which it is not. Um, UDL is a really proactive, planful way of designing to remove barriers because we believe in variability and firm goals and expert learning. Differentiated instruction is how do we respond to the needs of groups of students based on what formative assessment data suggests that students need. And so it's not ever UDL or DI, it's always UDL and DI. So when we're thinking about UDL, we're designing first best instruction. We're allowing all learners to take the time to reflect, to make choices, to move forward. When given formative assessment data, if I have six students who are really struggling with a task, who are not making progress, I of course am going to pull those six students into small group instruction for some targeted intervention. And that is differentiated instruction. Now, Carol Tomlinson is very, very, very firm on flexible groupings. Okay, right. It's not like these are my struggling kids. These are my accelerated kids. It's yeah. these kids nailed this task. And I think they might need an additional le- level of challenge. These right. three kids really struggled with this task. But I'm not pulling kids based on some arbitrary label that I assign them. Mm-hmm. So it's very flexible, but differentiated instruction is really about once we, we see, you know, where our students are at, what options do we know we have to provide in response to right. what students need. And so there's this beautiful dance of, as I universally design instruction, I am very, very responsive to student feedback, which requires me to differentiate instruction sometimes for learners through the classroom. But that differentiated instruction actually leads me to universally design better the next time because it's like, wow, students shouldn't have struggled with that so much. What could I have done design-wise to minimize that struggle? And so as an instructor, I am very, very focused on universally designing instruction and also differentiating instruction when necessary. But I see that many educators will create a lesson that says like struggling students will do this and 
kids who are accelerated will do this. And that's not even giving students the opportunity to try. They're not allowed to make those choices. So think of differentiated instruction as teacher differentiated learning, which should always supplement and not supplant self-differentiated learning, which is what universal design for learning would require. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was hoping you would go there because I was going to ask you about differentiated instruction. And I love the fact that rather than, you know, which which so often happens in education where we try to create um, contrasts for the sake of, of, of distinction and, and trying to one up or what, you know, we don't do that, we do this. I love the fact that you you talked about the and, not the or. It's not an either or choice, but there's a, a dance between the two for sure. Um, I want to connect a few dots here uh, with UDL. Now, as, as teachers and administrators might be thinking about UDL and uh, 21st century competencies, right? So how does UDL set teachers up or set schools up to be efficient and effective in helping you know, students develop 21st century competencies? We're talking about critical thinking or uh, creativity and innovation. We're talking about collaboration, communication, you know, the four C's and beyond uh, you know, social competence, all of these things. How does, how does UDL you know, really support that growth in 21st century skills? I mean, expert learning is really focused on 21st century skills explicitly, is that we want students to be critical thinkers. We want them to be problem solvers. We want them to build empathy. And yet, traditional school did not provide a lot of opportunities for students to build that. Um, I was a basketball player. And in order to get really um, good at basketball, I had to spend a lot of time dribbling and I had to spend a lot of time shooting. And I certainly didn't get all the baskets in, not even half of them. And when we think about becoming critical thinkers and becoming problem solvers, I think that teachers are really worried about stepping back and giving students the options to choose which is requires critical thinking, which requires problem solving, you know, to say, as you're working, if you get stuck, here are some options. Right. And teachers will always say to me, but what about the kids who need them and they don't get them? Or what about the kids who are going to choose them? And it's, they're just going to do it to take the easy way. And it's like, well, how do you expect anybody to be able to like get in a shot on the basketball court if you don't give them a lot of time to shoot around. And I think that we learn to make really good decisions by reflecting on the consequences of our maybe less effective decisions. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about how do we help students to become, you know, more better communicators and, you know, and, and to understand more appropriately how to react to the task and the purpose, you have to give them space and get out of their way to learn that and then be there to provide that feedback. So Mm -hmm. if I say to all my learners, okay, I'm going to use the Civil War example just because it's, it's, I think most people can connect with that. It's just, just regular content. We want you to explain why this war started. And when you look at that, when we say, all right, everyone, you know, here's the, let's start off with the grading criteria. Let's start off with a goal. This is what ultimately you're going to learn. This is what ultimately you're going to share. Um, here's a number of different ways that you can learn it. So really think about what's best for you. Okay. I'm going to do a check-in tomorrow and we're going to see what you've learned and what you're struggling with. And then you can decide to continue to move forward. Or I might pull some of you in a small group just to check on some misconceptions. You know, you're going to turn in a draft of your video or your outline next or when we do that, right. Students become 
co-creators and and co-teachers and co-learners, you know, along with us. That's very different from everyone's going to read this chapter in the textbook. And then you're going to answer those three questions in your notebook in blue or black ink. And then you're going to leave an inch margin. So like it's, it's, they're just robots. It's just straight up compliance. And I'm telling you that compliance is not one of the 21st century skills, like, <laughs> like just do what you're told. Cause you we're we're literally competing with robots who do exactly what they're told. So right. we need to, when given a task, think about our own strengths, areas that we need support or challenge. And we have to be given the space to create that journey. And I just don't think that we do that enough. And then we're frustrated that students do not have those skills. And one of the most heartbreaking things for me is in the spring when COVID-19 kind of shut schools down, there were a lot of kids struggling. Kids shouldn't need teachers as much as they did to learn. The fact that so many students were struggling when they weren't right in front of a teacher is all the evidence you need that we need to allow students to build more independence, more critical thinking, more problem solving, and to get to know themselves as learners, as opposed to having this lifeline to someone who tells them, this is what you need to learn. Absolutely. And and teachers uh, mistakenly think that this is a zero sum game where the more the more students are involved, the more I back away. And it really isn't about that. This isn't a zero sum game. It changes the work of teachers, right? It's not teachers are doing different work, uh, but they're still actively involved in the learning. I think that's one of the misunderstandings about, you know, getting students more invested in their own learning, activating them as, you know, creators of their own learning experiences. I think too often teachers see that as a zero-sum game where where I, I now back away. So what would I be doing? You'll be doing a lot. In fact, it it feels at times like teachers are 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 doing more, but they're just doing different work. Am I am I right on that? Yeah, I think it's I think it's different. When people say, but this takes so much time, it doesn't. It yeah. doesn't take more time. It's just you can't add it to your plate without taking something off, which Absolutely. I think is like really important. That whenever people learn about new things, they're thinking about adding this. I'm talking yeah. about replacing this. Yeah. You know, there's things that you're doing right now that you're spending way too much time doing for kids what they could do for themselves. And that's some of the time that becomes like, you know, I could plan a UDL lesson in front of my class. You know, to say, all right, everyone, you know, the next unit coming up is we're going to be talking about animal adaptations and, you know, why that's important. And this is like at the end, you're going to be able to choose an animal and talk about, you know, some of the adaptations they've made as far as, you know, you know, the, the food that they're eating and where they're living and, and all of that. And so like when you back up and you say to students, like, let's think about this goal, like what are some ways that you could share what you have learned at the end of this? Does anyone have any really cool, like, Everybody has time for that, you know, and it's also, it's creating relationships. It's empowering student voices and creativity. It's really like optimizing and capturing innovation, but it's, you don't have to do all the work on your own. And, you know, I think that so many times, like teachers spend way too much time grading given what the effect size is of self-reported grading and, right. you know, right. and, and student providing, you know, like doing reflection feedback or one-on-one mm-hmm. conferences that are happening in class that actually can happen now because you've planned everything so great that students are like working on their own. You know, some kids are yeah. watching videos, some kids are revising. You can pull small groups. And mm-hmm. I think that right now, many people struggle with how could I pull a small group for differentiated instruction because they're picturing themselves in front of the classroom, right? 
teaching. And, and that is, is not the way a universally designed classroom looks. It supports multiple tasks and formats at the same time. Mm -hmm. Certainly there is explicit instruction, but it's not taking up a 60 minute period. That's for sure. Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's interesting, just what your, your response there just made me think of something I've been saying for a lot, a lot of years now, which is, you know, the importance of teachers developing their assessment literacy is not so that they become assessment experts. It's, it's so they develop an expertise so they can teach the students how to do this on their own behalf, how to recognize their own, in, an, in their own learning, how to teach them how to self-assess, make inferences with criteria. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the self-reporting and the self-feedback, the self-assessment, the peer assessment in all of that, I think is a, a critical part. But if, if we don't have the capacity to help students understand how to do that, uh, that, that, that can be another, uh, to use the word, another barrier to our opportunities to, to have students students to, you know, be fully activated in their learning. Okay, so we're going to finish up. Um, I mean, I honestly, I could talk to you about UDL for four hours, but uh, <laughs> or longer, but we're going to finish up uh, with this question. Um, how, how does a teacher? Okay, so Katie, I'm in, I'm a teacher, I want to get started. How do I get started? They understand UDL. Uh, conceptually, they want to do it. They're energized about it but they don't know where to begin. Like, how do I begin this? If I'm, if I'm a novice, how do I begin this UDL journey? I would really recommend asking for feedback from students and their parents and their families and their caregivers. I think that that's a really important first step is to really ask students to think about what of the what are the barriers that they are facing. And clearly, if you're working with very young kids, you'll have to phrase it like a little bit differently. But, mm -hmm. you know, thinking about, you know, are you challenged every single day in this class? Um, you know, do you in do you do you do things in this classroom that you didn't think you'd ever be able to do? Um, what are some ways that you know you're really effective when you're learning this way? Like things like that. There's a lot of really good tools out there already that ask for student feedback, you know, for engagement, you know, reaching out to families, you know, um, I love, love serving your children with you. It's been like an absolute pleasure getting to know them. I'm looking to stretch my own practice by providing some different pathways for learners. Um, you know, these are some things that I'm going to try in the upcoming weeks, you know, vote on which one you think I should try first. Thank you for your patience as we navigate expert learning. I think that there is definitely underutilization of family and community engagement. And then also, I mean, we are serving the learners in front of us. And, you know, if we say to them, um, you know, what are some ways that you would love to show your understanding? You know, what are some things that you would that you would be interested in doing? You can start getting ideas for the options, like even really young learners. I have a kindergartner and his math teacher the other day said, I need all of you to practice your math facts when you're home. You can go on your iPad and you can do IXL math for 15 minutes, which is, you know, just um, a, a computer program where you're just answering questions. You can work on the flashcards I sent home with you. So there's like addition flashcards that they could go through. Um, they could play the make 10 game, which is you just have a deck of cards. You know, if I throw down a six, you say four. And then she said to them, you could choose other options. And so the class, some of them said, you know, could we make a, a, a quiz for someone in our house? So my son made me a quiz and, and I, you know, wrote like four plus one and I had to answer them and then he had to correct it. 
and I put a couple of things that were wrong. And, you know, he, he noticed that I was wrong, but that was his idea. He's five. Like you don't get younger than that in like, you know, like (laughs) these three, four, five year olds, like we could make a test for our parents. And it's like, that's a great way to reflect on math fluency, but it wasn't the teacher's idea. And so I think that in many ways we feel like we have to be the ones to come up with the options. And there are some options that are really far out there. And that I've said, I just don't think there's any way that you could possibly show me that you understand sentence structure by doing that. (laughs) Like the goal (laughs) is, is that you show that you understand sentence structure, keep working on it. Maybe we're just not there yet, but from what you say right now, there is 0% chance that I could fill out this rubric based on what you're proposing. And that's okay too, but it's the conversation and the willingness to listen. Yeah. I think that you know, asking them, soliciting that information, uh, tapping into their interests and and what sort of drives them, I think is a, is really really great advice. Uh, as I said, uh, Katie, your 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 expertise is impressive. Your energy is contagious. Um, I, I'm definitely going to have you back on the podcast again to talk. Uh, uh, maybe we t- we do a part two and we dig a little deeper into specific aspects of UDL. But I really appreciate you uh, you being here. We're going to finish uh, finish up the interview with a segment I call three questions. Uh, I'm going to ask you three lighthearted questions so listeners can maybe get to know Katie a little bit on a personal level. Nothing too intrusive, of course. Uh, And then I have one more question for you at the end. So the first question I want to ask you, a fun question, lighthearted question, is a a this or that kind of question, okay? And it has to do with one of the most important um, issues in every household. Mm -hmm. Toilet paper. Over or under? I have no idea. I just shove it on. <laughs> so I am, I'm going to say I'm equal opportunity. Um, okay. Yeah. You need all right. <laughs> first of all, if there's act, if somebody replaced the toilet paper, which would probably never happen. I'm a mom of four. I yeah. would just rejoice that it's on. Okay. Fair but enough. like what most often happens is I just get like the Brown cardboard roll and then, and I just shove it back on. So I choose both. Okay, you choose both. That's fair enough. I I will just say that I think people that put the toilet paper under have given up on life. I think that's just wow. That's an aggressive statement. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So two, if uh, if you were if you were arrested for no uh, with no explanation, what would your friends and family assume you had done? Oh, it would be an act of civil disobedience, probably animal (laughs) abuse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. We, um, no, it, it would definitely, um, I, you know, the, uh, one of the, one of my favorite quotes ever, my favorite Ted talk of all time is Clint Smith's the danger of silence. And in it, he talks about Martin Luther King says that we will not, um, you know, it's not that we'll remember the words of our enemies as much as we'll remember the silence of our friends. Right. And as I get older, um, I, I have overcome that kind of that like stuckness and that silence of like, why isn't anyone saying anything? And I'm going to say something. And so, um, you know, I, I find that, you know, being in a public place and seeing, you know, animal abuse or domestic abuse or child abuse, um, that is something that I would definitely get involved in and be willing to take the risk of getting arrested for it. There you go. Peaceful, um, of course. Peace, peaceful, of course, right? Uh, but, but uh, speaking of, I think mine would be speeding. I think I'd probably. End oh up gosh, having- no! I'm a super lame driver. <laughs> no, it would be definitely like you can't talk to her like that. Like, are you okay? But yeah. then things like that tend to escalate. Sure. 
Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So third question. Okay. Um, what is uh, something that is super popular right now that you just find absolutely annoying? Oh, that is a great question. Um, let's see. Something super popular right now that I think is annoying. I have to think of all like my pet peeves here. Right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, I have bought into a lot of the popular things right now. I'm like totally swayed by marketing. I'm going to go with, oh, you know what? I know Zoom social gatherings. <laughs> no way. No way. Like my friends are like, we haven't seen you in six months. I'm like, well, you're going to have to wait another six months because I am not going on Zoom <laughs> at like 10 o'clock at night to hang out. I'm on Zoom for 40 hours a week minimum to like yeah. do this. But like at night, get me away from screens. Right now yeah. I'm reading The Art of Gathering. It's lovely, but okay. I need like a magazine or a book. I am not into Zoom socializing. There you go. So no Zoom happy hours for Katie. That's, nope. Uh... Nope. I'm not coming. <laughs> She's out. <laughs> I'll send you a pic right. on my phone. I'll drink in. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So uh, we're going to finish up the podcast as I do with every interview uh, with a question I've asked everyone who's come on the podcast. And it really has to do with success and happiness. I, I, it's a theme I'm kind of running through the podcast, of course. And so I want to ask you this question and just ask you from your perspective, you know, if a random person stopped you on the street, um, appropriately social distance, of course, but if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? I would say that success, I always tell my kids this, is, is truly living the life that you want to live. Um, I think that when you think about kind of your non-negotiables and, and what makes you really fulfilled and what makes you really happy, whatever life will serve that vision, I think is a good, beautiful, successful life. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's absolutely good advice. And, and living the life that you want to live makes you successful because we all get to choose the, what what is the life I want to live, right? And so there is no standard for what success is, but success is setting that goal and, and reaching that. I love that. Um, Katie, I really appreciate you joining me today and taking the time uh, to talk UDL and all of that. Listeners, I would really encourage you to follow Katie on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at Katie Novak UDL. Um, Novak Educational Consulting is also on Facebook. So you can uh, search that there uh, as well as uh, Instagram. Right. So we have Instagram is uh, is you also have a, a at Novak uh, underscore consulting, if I'm correct, on the Instagram posts as well. And uh, and all of the different uh, ways that you can get a hold of Katie. Also, uh, Katie, your website has lots of resources on it. Do you want to give people that that uh, website? Yeah, sure. Now? It's just NovakEducation.com, N-O-V-A-K. And yeah. there's new content added once a week. So I try mm -hmm. to blog at least once a week and. Um, we do a lot of podcasts. So in addition to, to sharing this out, that'll be yeah. at the link called In the News. Mm -hmm. Great, great. Awesome. And lots of either your book listings are there. Lots of great content as well. So uh, that's 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 fantastic resource as well. Also ways to get a hold of you if if schools are interested in in having you uh, work with them or teachers to work with you or schools to to for PD sessions, things like that as well. Right. Yep, absolutely. So, I'm there. Absolutely. Great. So Katie, again, thanks for joining me uh, on the podcast. I look forward to next time and uh, appreciate all that you are uh, doing to influence the world of education. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. All right. In assessment corner this week, I want to get back to last week's topic of atypical assessment methods. Now, for those of you who missed last week's, 
uh, segment, you might want to go back and listen to that uh, at some point because last week I talked about the why of atypical assessments and you know specifically collaborative conversations and storytelling. This week I'm going to focus on the how. So let's start with collaborative conversations. Now, Cassandra, Nicole, and I, when we wrote Instructional Agility in the chapter on engaging uh, or engineering conversations, identified five important aspects of effectively engineering collaborative conversations among students, okay? The first is to clarify the expectations of the learning conversation. One important step is that students understand what quality and non-quality examples of conversations look like. We do that because we need to isolate criteria. We need to figure out you know, what is the learning goal? What what makes that conversation productive? And again, we're talking about two things here. One is the self-assessment of my learning, and the other is the self-assessment of the degree to which I have fully contributed to the conversation, the, the collaboration part. So again, it's important to establish a focal point, and there could be more than one for sure, but we just want to make sure everybody is on the same page. What does a quality conversation look like? Okay, two. Vary the discussion format, the rules, and the roles. Almost all of the standards and outcomes, whether you're talking common core, whether you're talking provincial outcomes, it doesn't matter where you go. Almost all of them require learners to engage in a variety of discussion formats, group sizes, and partnerships, right? So there's, there's there's a variety there that we think about and a variety of topics. And of course, the topics need to be age appropriate. Um, There's a balance, of course, between structure and it becoming too clinical. Uh, The structures are there mostly to guide the inexperienced because once there are norms of collaboration and habitual practice, the structures, the rules, the protocols will almost become unnecessary. But variety also allows the students to understand the nuances between different collaborative situations. Like a partnership is a a different dynamic than, say, a group of four, a group of six. You know, when we're problem solving, that's one thing. When we're debating a controversial issue, that's another thing. You know, it's good to naturally mix it up, um, and and given the specific learning goals at hand, the structure or format will probably sort of emerge as being obvious. Three, we need to teach the language of engaging conversations. Now, learners who have a limited experience with engaging conversations can actually be quite uncomfortable when it comes to sort of sharing in a conversation or a dialogue. So providing them with some constructs, some some phrases or some, some stems can actually help increase their, their confidence level. Again, this is particularly important when there is a conversation around a controversial issue, right? This could be very helpful uh, because learners need the language of academic transitions. They need the language, they need stems that can be used to reference their background preparation for the conversation. They need to understand how to disagree with one another. How can I disagree without being disagreeable? Um, you know, how do I paraphrase? How do I quote people? I, you know, all of those are important skills to learn, and we really should not leave anything to chance. So making sure we sort of have an, a sense of where students are with a productive language of a conversation. Yes, that's a front-end investment of time. I get that. But it will have most things that are a front-end investment have a back-end payoff to them. All right, number four. Monitor the effectiveness of the individuals and the groups. Now, listen, it, you know, when kids are engaged in collaborative conversations, it is impossible to watch everybody closely, right? Every single student can't be assessed every single time um, because they're all happening at once. Now, formatively, as you're circulating around the room, if you're in a face-to-face situation or if you happen to drop into different breakout rooms online, 
Yes, you can get a sense formatively of the understandings or the misunderstandings that are emerging, and it helps you make a formative decision about what comes next in the learning. But, you know, that, that, that's easier. But if you're thinking about the sort of summative moments where you might be saying, okay, today I'm actually assessing their contribution to a collaborative conversation, um, then we have to be strategic about how we gather that evidence. I mean, you're going to watch all the students, yes, but probably only focus on a handful of students so you can take a closer look at them. So the key for me is not about watching every student every day. For me, the key is getting an adequate sampling of every student over a period of time. So maybe you create a protocol for yourself that rotates the students in groups of six or something like that, right? So today I'm going to watch these six students closely. I'll again, listen to everybody, but I'm going to watch these six closely. Next time it'll be a different six. So if you had a class of 30, uh, you know, every fifth uh, collaborative conversation that the students have, you'd have seen them all. You'd have been able to assess them all. So I think that's important. And the last one, number five, is to monitor the effectiveness of the conversations. Like not every conversation is going to be monumental, epic, or you know, transformative. It's not all of them are going to be a guaranteed success. So when they're not, use that opportunity to learn what works and what doesn't work by thinking about, you know, little action research on your own regarding the effectiveness of the conversation. Reflect on, you know, was the task meaningful? Uh, was was the prompt provocative? Uh, did uh, did I actually get uh, quality evidence from that experience? Um, or uh, you know how how did they how did the dynamics play out or something like that? Right. So increasing proficiency is ultimately the goal. So we we have to examine these opportunities to see if they're actually producing the desired results. So again, just to recap. Clarify the expectations of the learning conversations, vary the discussion formats, rules, and roles, and teach the language of engaging conversations, then monitor the effectiveness both for individuals and for groups, and then monitor the effectiveness in its totality and think about and reflect on whether it was a quality experience for the students. Okay. I also talked a little last week about storytelling and how being a culturally responsive assessor means we have to consider expanding our definition of what quality evidence looks like. And I called that, last week I called them atypical assessments because they are atypical when compared to the sort of white Eurocentric definition of success. They are not atypical to so many other cultures. Now, what is significant about storytelling? Well, storytelling, of course, is a way to express learning, but it also is a way to maintain oral traditions. And in some cases, it may be a way to preserve language. Now, what I'm about to do is a think aloud here, okay? So um, I don't know if I have all of my thoughts completely formulated on this idea, but I'm going to do a bit of a think aloud, things that I'm sort of thinking in this moment, and, you know, I may change my mind down the road or expand down the road, and, and I'll bring that back to you, but right now, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that storytelling is a way for us to tell the story of learning or tell the story of my learning, Okay, so let's start with telling the story of learning. Okay, that's the first, the first part. Using their, their voice or their you know, intonation or their, their verbal imagery, their facial expressions, their pacing, their attention to detail to carefully tell a story. Now again, I mentioned this last week. The vast majority of what we communicate is usually from our facial expressions and our paralinguistic patterns. Right, so that's how 
meaning is modified. That's how we give nuance. That's how we convey emotion, right, through pitch and volume and cadence and all of those things. Very little of what we communicate actually comes from the words. And yet in schools, it seems that the words only are... is are the most dominant way that we ask students to demonstrate their learning. It's the written word, it's the typed word, uh, and, and that seems to be our dominant method. You know, telling a story of anything forces a little bit of connectivity and a little bit of synthesis, right? Rather than answering questions and just getting them right wrong, the storyteller has to make connections and synthesize ideas, right? Synthesizing ideas, of course, is critical thinking. That's one critical thinking skills. So choosing or determining the correct answers is not the same thing. It's one thing to recount, for example, the facts of World War II, but it's quite another to tell the story of World War II. What is the story there? What is the lesson? What are we, what are we learning from that? Or what, what, how are all of the events interrelated? I mean, we could even approach this assessment-wise from the idea of like, here's the factual information, now let's tell the real story. And like I said, this is a think aloud. And as I explore my own thoughts and other resources, I'm, I'm sure my thinking is going to evolve. But I'm thinking about, you know, what is the story of this historical event? Or what is the story? Now, that's not always going to be applicable. Remember, the goal of expanding our definition of success is not to discredit the typed word or the written word. It's to allow other demonstrations that are ultra, also culturally uh, responsive. So this isn't a zero-sum game here. Don't think that every assessment now has to be a story. Uh, it doesn't. But can we at least include some of that where it's naturally applicable? Okay, now let's talk about telling the story of my learning. Okay, the other thing that I think we could do with storytelling is allow learners to talk about their personal story, like of their journey as a learner, uh, both in acute situations but also longitudinally. Right. So this meaning that, you know, what is the story of your learning or how did you learn this particular unit or this content or this skill or this competency? But we could also tell the story of my learning journey throughout the semester or throughout the school year or throughout the years. Uh, that's also possible because that offers, you know, metacognition. It offers them a chance to express their growth as, as learners. It again gets them to synthesize their experiences and, and talk about them in a more holistic way. Um, you may even be able to tell the future story, which is allowing students to hypothesize about future goals or potential successes. Uh, it definitely personalizes the journey toward reaching the intended learning goals. And of course, it forces students to, in a good way, examine themselves in the abstract and look at themselves more holistically. That's Howard Gardner, who said to be successful in the future, we all need to develop an ethical mind. And what he means by that is that we need the ability to see ourselves in the abstract and decide what kind of person do I want to be. So storytelling can really help accelerate that sort of reflection piece. What is my story as a learner? So again, tell the story of the learning or tell the story of my learning. Storytelling is an integral part of indigenous culture and of course many other cultures as well. Um, and there's always that risk that if we continue to dismiss this as a valid form of evidence, without storytelling, you know, indigenous people and others would lose their identity in many ways. Not entirely, but, but definitely a, a big part of that. 
So I, look, I don't pretend to be an expert on storytelling, right? There's nothing like the 53-year-old white guy telling you about storytelling, right? Um, I know I have a lot to learn, and um, but I think there's something here. Maybe we just start to make storytelling or telling the story more habitual. Yeah, look, I know there are logistical considerations in terms of time. Like, Tom, where would I find the time for that? I get it. But at some point, something has to give if we are going to be culturally responsive and expansive in our view of what success looks like. If stories are going to be used as authentic evidence, we're going to have to expand that view. And the first step is to recognize that stories are authentic evidence and should be considered as authentic as any written word. Like Once we have that, as the saying goes, where there's a will, there's a way. But the first step is to understand that A, the spoken word is as valid as any. And then once we start making this idea of telling the story, involve your students and allow them to talk about their cultural traditions and begin to incorporate some of those constructs into the opportunities for them to demonstrate their learning so we truly can expand our definition of what success looks like. Okay, that's it for today. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. Personal Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer. Facebook, Shimmer Education, Instagram, Tom Shimmer Podcast. No shortage of social media platforms. Uh, also, please email me your questions for Assessment Corner or suggestions uh, for the podcast. That's Tom Shimmer Pod at gmail.com. And don't forget, as I mentioned in the opening, to check out the YouTube channel. Uh, look, again, looking to add some features, different video segments there in 2021. Next week, my guest will be Shauna Brown. She is best known as Teach for the Culture on Instagram. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation, I know, about racial equity and where she thinks we are here at the beginning of 2021. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. That seems to be the place where your ratings and subscriptions go a long way uh, to expanding the listening audience. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>